Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We are really pumped about today's guest. We have Miss Liz Hembling. She is a rock star mom who has learned all about the science of reading all on her own. And she's going to tell us her story about why she had to do that. And uh, Melissa, I know you're probably really excited because you're normally in the secondary world, but we're diving right into the K2 world today. So uh, Melissa, how pumped are you to talk to Liz? <laughs> well, I'm really excited. I think, you know, sometimes, I'm not saying we always do this, but sometimes when you talk about literacy or science of reading, it just becomes this abstract thing that people are arguing about how to do it the best way. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to Liz to hear, you know, the real story of how it <laughs> impacts a, a child <laughs> um, and what that really means. So I'm excited to hear her story. Yeah, and I'm excited because I am obsessed with Emily Hanford's APM reports, and Liz um, is going to tell us about how she impacted the very first one that Emily did. So that's kind of a cool twist as well. <laughs> Absolutely. We love Emily Hanford. <laughs> yes. So Liz, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I really am excited to be here. Yeah. So t tell us a little bit about who you are, and uh, you can even drop in your claim to fame with, with Emily Hanford, <laughs> if you'd like, because I know you guys are buds now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so my name is Liz Hembling. I'm one of the chapter leaders for Decoding Dyslexia. I'm just a mom, never taught school ever in my life. So I want to put that out there um, and really got into this because of my journey with my daughter. Um, and I'll kind of give you the backstory um, with her, but, you know, um, and Emily sort of came into this later um, as we started the advocacy journey um, in the first starting in the dyslexia world and really parlaying that into gen ed reading. Um, to sort of back, back you up a little bit, um, my daughter really struggled with reading, and she was my first, I have two kids, she was my first child. I really, you know, I went to college myself, um, you know, but I never had kids before, I'm not a teacher, I really didn't know what was normal in terms of reading, um, I did know that she was struggling, um, and I brought it, in, but she was a really smart kid. I mean, she had these very um, kind of unusual interests for a kid her age, like extreme interest in geography and history could um, really put, I mean, she could put all the countries on the map in Africa, which let's be honest, a lot of high schoolers couldn't <laughs> do. I mean, I, mean, know, I think you could probably say countries. grown adults. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you the capitals of all those countries. I mean, really, like, in, at a very young age. I mean, certainly couldn't spell any of them, but, you know, really had an incredible, um, you know, aptitude for history and geography and those types of things. And, but the reading was just horrific and really struggled. And, and it was painful. I mean, she would... They would, you know, the teachers would tell you to read and her head would hurt and the words would move. And, 
it was just really pretty miserable. And I went to the school. Well, I'll, I'll back up first in second grade. And I think this is helpful for teachers because, you know, this story happens in every classroom. When you talk about dyslexia and the prevalence, at least according to Yale, is one in five. Some people give percentages between five and 15%. Um, you know, this is in every single classroom. So I think this story is really, really important. Um, she really, really struggled with, you know, the reading. And I went to the school in second grade and, and sat for that first parent-teacher conference, okay? And the teacher told me, this is in November, that they had been pulling her out for extra help in reading, okay? As a parent, I didn't really understand what that meant. I didn't understand, like, oh, my gosh, like, if they're pulling her out, you need to go and get your kid tested. You need to fight to get your kid tested. Like, I didn't know what that meant. And the teacher said, well, well, and I was concerned. And she goes, oh, we already moved her back into gen ed. You know, we, she doesn't need this help anymore. Like, everything's fine. And so I'm like, okay, well, I guess everything's fine. But I could see that she had these struggles. The end of second grade, going into third. So we're headed into that summer. And I'm having the parent-teacher conference. Like, that May, June, before the summer of third grade. And I said, listen, she's getting D's on all her reading comprehension tasks. Like everything that's coming home is a D. And they looked at me and they said, that's passing. And I'll never forget it. They said, we just benchmarked her and we assure you she is on grade level. And I said, well, okay, if that is the case, then, um, you know, it, let's just off the record. And I didn't know anything about, I went to private school myself special ed was never even in my world. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't even know kids should be tested. I didn't know anything about learning disabilities, dyslexia, nothing. And I said, listen, if it's off the record and I get her privately tutored over the summer, what do you guys think I should do? And they literally said, I said, how many days a week should I have this child tutored? Three. And I walked out of that meeting. I'm like, well, if she needs three days a week of private tutoring, like, how can you tell me my kid's fine? Yeah. And, you know, I really trusted the school. I trusted the teacher to tell me that there was something wrong. And all along the way, like, it, it just, she, she was a smart kid from a good family. Maybe they thought that she would pull it together. Maybe they didn't know anything about this. I don't know what the reason was. But at the end of the day, I had a kid who was miserable, who had a learning disability that was never picked up by anybody. And frankly, had I not had the financial means and the gut instinct and really some, some just lucky things that happened along the way, she probably would be a high school dropout today. I kid you not. Um, that is you such know, an luckily, impactful story. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, we, we, luckily, you know, we had a family friend who worked at the Gemini School, and I just was very lucky. You know, I had her tutored that summer by someone who was not a, a struck, you know, a Orton Gillingham. I mean, it was just a general teacher tutor. Nothing happened. And my mother had a conversation with a friend of hers that worked at the Gemini School. And it wasn't until they had that conversation that her friend 
went out on a limb and suggested that we have her tested for dyslexia. And I went and did that. I privately paid for the testing and she in fact was dyslexic. And, you know, at that point I took everything into my own hands and that's what set me off on this journey. If I didn't have that outside advice, if I didn't have the money for private testing, if I couldn't afford private tutoring, if I ultimately couldn't afford private school, I put her in the Odyssey school, she would have never gotten the help in the public school system or identified. And yeah. she was, and I want to point out, she was in public school through the sixth grade and she was never, ever identified as a struggling student by the school. She was never identified as even being behind in reading. She was never in special education. And by the time I had her retested in sixth grade, she was on a third grade reading level in sixth grade. And the school still insisted she was fine until I had those updated testing results. So I just want to make it clear that there was not at one time where one teacher was alarmed that there was something wrong with this kid and she was three grade levels behind in reading. That should be alarming to everybody in education. Yeah. I, you know, I'm so curious. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. And thank you for sharing that story. Like, I, I can't even imagine what those years of life must have felt like. You know, I, I felt like you were looking for something that was invisible, like really couldn't be seen. Nobody could see inside her brain to know. And, you know, I myself, I'm curious to talk to Melissa about this too. Like, Melissa, I didn't really know what dyslexia was until I became a teacher and and started asking questions about it because I had heard the word, but I didn't know how to identify it. I didn't know much about it. And I've said it before on other podcasts. I have a, a bachelor's degree in elementary ed. I have a master's in reading, so I could be a reading specialist. And I have an admin one. So I went through a program to become a school leader. So Melissa, tell me about like, have you, like, how did you? (laughs) Same, Lori. I mean, yeah, right. Like undergrad in education. I have my master's degree to be a reading specialist as well. I am sure at some point we probably talked about dyslexia in my master's degree program for a blip like a hot second is how I feel like it might have happened right like just a oh dyslexia is and then that's it yeah to the point that I like left that program feeling like I know how to potentially look for someone that might be dyslexic I not at all yeah (laughs) Um, and I know there are like screeners that exist at this point for our younger students but I know very little about them and how um they play out in our schools. Yeah. Liz, I'm curious. You you mentioned a statistic earlier. You said five to 15%. Was that of our population? Well, you know, I think the numbers are really hard to pin down and I'll tell you why. Because look, you guys have master's degrees. You guys don't know anything about dyslexia. Look at who gets diagnosed with dyslexia in this country. I mean, what schools are diagnosed, you know, are identifying children and getting them tested for dyslexia? I mean, you're seeing this start to happen now because of the advocacy work that's been done throughout the country. 
But I think it's really hard to really know what the numbers are because if you don't even have teachers trained in that are reading specialists, I mean, you should be have your spidey sense up with every kid that's struggling with reading, um, you know, that's going to a specialist for reading. Your spidey sense should be up for dyslexia. I mean, dys means not. Lexia means reading. Kids who have reading failure should be screened for dyslexia. So, you know, who knows what these numbers really look like? Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a really good point. <laughs> uh, and sad, right? That's a sad, sad point to make, um, but, but a true one and a good one. And I think that that's why, uh, you know, when Emily Hanford's podcast came out and the APM report that coincided with it, and, I, you know, I believe she quoted you, right? Like you said, a dyslexia is a rich man's game. Am I right? That was actually another person. Another from person, okay. Putting dyslexia, yeah, Maggie. So, but, <laughs> but you were, were like, there you go again. <laughs> no, but you were, you were, it was that podcast that that was you, right? Like that was your podcast, so that was your way, report? Well, she what happened she, was um, she came, like she, Emily got very interested in, you know, she started looking at children in college and I don't want to mess her story up, but you know, a lot of them that ended up in remedial reading, like, really had dyslexia. And so she started kind of looking at this at the elementary ed level and started seeing this group of decoding dyslexia that was going around the country. And she came, because she is in Maryland, lives in Maryland, she came to our decoding dyslexia group. And she just did this lecture the other day and said that was like her first file, you know, when she started with decoding dyslexia and came to our meeting and had her big boom and, you know, was starting to interview us. And she did that first podcast podcast on dyslexia, hard words. The precursor to that, she did an interview with Mia and me, and she ran that as like a precursor to hard words. So she did like a 20-minute podcast with me and me. This was in 2016. And then after that, you'll hear more people from – Decoding Dyslexia Maryland that were interviewed for hard words. Got it. So okay. hopefully that, you know, and then it sort of took off from there. And I think what most people realize is when they start in this dyslexia, they start looking at dyslexia, you start really pulling back and realizing it's not just dyslexia. This is about how children are taught to read in this country Mm-hmm. Um, the dyslexics, I think, are sort of the canary in the coal mine because the decoding is such a critical piece, and that's where the children are really having difficulty. Um, and the equity implications, I think, for dyslexia when, you know, frankly, I mean, I look at my own story, you know, it is a rich man's game. I mean, that that quote is so true because... At that time, we had no one trained to look at it, to identify it, to remediate it. Um, And so everyone was paying privately. Um, But what you realize is that all kids benefit from decoding explicit, you know, decoding instruction using the science of reading. And when you look, and Emily Hanford makes this point, if you have a school where 90% of kids are below level, who's dyslexic in that school? Like, how do you figure out who has dyslexia and who has dystichia? You can't. How do you screen for it when everybody 
is struggling with decoding. Right. Yeah. And yeah, and so I think that becomes what's, a huge problem. Yes. And, and what, you know, for our listeners, we, we talk a lot on this podcast about, and, you know, I'm going to reference Scarborough's rope. So we talk a lot about the blue part of the rope, but we are super excited to talk to you today because you're really talking about that red part of the rope where, you know, the impact of the red on the blue, right. And how they, they blend and work together and, you know, braid together. Um, so that, that decoding piece that you're finding is good for all children. That's what the research is showing, but that not all children are getting. And then the children who need it most, right. Our, our, our students who are dyslexic, our children who are dyslexic, they are not getting help at all. And they are the ones who are dramatically falling behind. So, you know, I, I often wonder if this is good for all kids, then why aren't we doing it? And, and I'm sure you're wondering the same thing, right? It's a great question. I mean, as a parent, and I guess, you know, people say, well, how did you get, you know, to know all of this stuff? I mean, when you start paying to help your child, it's eye-opening. And then you're comparing these schools, you know, in our area, we have two very well-known, you know, schools that really focus on kids with language learning differences like dyslexia. And these kids go on to typically mainstream private schools, but, you know, competitive schools and then on to college. So the question is, like, what's going on in those schools I mean, they have schools that are full of kids with reading failure, and these kids are going on to lead very dyslexic, you know, very successful lives. That's exactly so, what I was going to ask you, Liz. Like, what did you see as the difference in the what was happening at the Odyssey School for your daughter that worked <laughs> that wasn't happening at, at the public school? Well, you know, and I think that's the question every teacher should be asking. I mean, I really hope that this spurs the intellectual curiosity to say especially here, but, you know, there are dyslexia schools all over this country that are highly successful. So, and these children are going on to lead very productive lives and they're, you know, going on to college and excellent careers in all types of capacities. So the question is, how is that happening? So the excuses, and, and I, and I want to throw this out too before we start down this road, is I was always told that kids struggled with reading, and this is really what spurred me on this journey, that it was their family income, family involvement, yep. the education of the parents. You know, the parents don't read to them. Mm-hmm. And I looked at my kid who struggled terribly with reading, who had involved parents, came from, you know, an, a, a good economic background with, you know, parents reading to her. I mean, I bought books when I was pregnant and my kid couldn't read. And I'm thinking all those things that I was told was a lie. And here you have a school full of kids who also can't read and they're all going on to be successful. So can we just stop this conversation, putting it on all these external factors and look at you know, the elephant in the room, which is the instruction and the quality of the instruction and what that instruction looks like. So when you look at a school like the Odyssey School, I mean, they are doing systematic, explicit instruction. They understand that this is um, really a morphophonemic language. The teachers, and I will tell you, 
people, you know, the question, and it even came up the other night, they say, well, what curriculum is the best? The fact is, it's like, what teacher training is the best? It's all about the teacher training. I'm telling you right now, you could take every book, every manipulative, everything out of that school and give those teachers a slate board and a pen and a piece of chalk, and those kids will learn to read. That's how important the teacher training is. And I'm saying this because I think teachers need to be challenging their universities that, that here they're paying for degrees in good faith. They are educating themselves to the nth degree, and they're not getting this information. And I, and yeah, I, and I want to add, Liz, they are required to. In, yeah. In, I mean, I, I don't know if this is across the country, but in Maryland, by the time, I believe it's like your ninth year of teaching, you have to, you are required to have started your master's degree program, which is failing you, right? Like is what I'm hearing you yeah. say. If you're, if you're in a, you know, for example, as a reading specialist or something like that, um, Melissa and I both sat here, we both have reading masters and we're both being very honest in saying that degree did not prepare us to identify dyslexia, to meet students' needs, to be able to intervene in uh, systematic foundational skills, um, to teach kids the decoding gaps that they have, things like that. So, you know, we are asking teachers to spend more after they get into the classroom to know less or to know not, not anymore, I guess. And I'll be really honest, like when I think of the science of reading and what it should have been in my master's degree program, it feels really intense. Like I should have been learning mm-hmm. a lot about how to teach the English language to students. It, it feels like, and it, to be really honest, it felt like my master's degree program was very fluffy. Yes. You know, like we were doing, <laughs> it was all around reading, but it was not the, like when I think of like compared to like a science, like, as becoming a doctor, you know, like mm-hmm. the intensity that you have to learn about the intricacies of the body and everything just wasn't there. And I, I wonder why we're so far yeah. from, from that. Yeah, and I want to scooch closer. It is, it is on that level. I mean, when you really start seeing people that understand, you know, the in-depth in and out of the science of reading, it, you are an academic therapist. I mean, the, and, and frankly, I don't know why teachers wouldn't want this because, frankly, it lifts you up to that level. I mean, you're like a diagnostician in a lot of ways, and, you know, it elevates the profession to this incredibly high level, and that's what teachers went into this profession to do, I really believe. I, I believe that teachers have the best of intentions that they want to help their students And I think the saddest thing I have seen in this world is when these teachers realize all the stuff that they didn't learn in their programs, how overwhelmed they feel, how broken they feel, what guilt they feel about they have this vision of all these students who went through their classes who they couldn't help and they see their faces. It's not like some blind, you know, like nebulous, they literally can rattle off the names of the students. We have teachers sitting there crying about this. This is not benign. It has huge psychological consequences, not just for the students who've been failed, but for the teachers who feel like they went into this to help kids and they have not 
being able to help their students. And it's real. It's like they're waking up out of this dream. I mean, we are seeing websites with tens of thousands of teachers on there with titles like what I should have learned in college trying to PD themselves on Facebook. I mean, this is the most outrageous fraud that has been perpetuated on teachers. And I think teachers should be holding their schools accountable for that. It really has done them a disservice. Yeah, I've been, I just started actually the letters training. I'm sure you've heard of it, Liz, (laughs) Um, which is great, but I, I, almost every person I know that has done it as well is, says, I should have learned this in school. You know, and so it's like, like Lori said, we, we went to school twice <laughs> and here we are having to take a separate professional development to get even a start of what we really need to know. Yeah. Louis, it's, there's it's, uh, the, oh, sorry, go ahead, Liz. <laughs> no, I mean, but that's exactly it. And we're finding that school districts are having to retrain teachers. The school district finally started to embrace us because, honestly, when you look at the literacy numbers, we just pulled them yesterday. In my county, we have 37% of all students that are on level with reading. Clearly, this isn't working. Right. You know, and so school districts are trying to make these changes, but they have nobody trained. It's very frustrating. You know, I I was thinking in terms of like training the um the reading league just started a a podcast and they interviewed louisa moats and she developed the letters training and melissa i don't know have you listened to it yet did i text you and tell you about it i haven't listened to it yet (laughs) (laughs) i knew about it but i haven't listened um so (laughs) i know so you know and she was i loved listening to her talk about it because she has a doctorate. She has been in the field for a very long time. And she said that about, you know, halfway through her career, she felt like a a, a charlatan. She felt like she was pretending to know these things. And finally, at some point, um, when she went through her, her doctoral program, she did learn a lot of it, but also a lot of it was through application, um, through, you know, where she was working and all of this just kind of came together for her, but she had so much guilt about all of the students like Liz, what you said earlier, right? Like she could see their faces. She was, you know, feeling, um, anger, disappointment, sadness at feeling like she failed generations of children (laughs) who she had taught. And, you know, I, 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 I feel like that resonates so much, especially coming from someone as iconic as, as her. And I love that she developed this training to support exactly what you're saying, Liz, like that teachers need that training in order to succeed. So that even if they don't have the materials <laughs> and those materials may not exist, they still know that, that this is the way that you teach the foundational skills and that students will be able to walk away having that understanding. And teachers have been told a lot of things that just aren't true about the English language. You know, like, well, they're just sight words and English is weird. And you just have to memorize it because it doesn't make sense. I mean, that's not true. It's just not true. We are a language that comes, it's a melt, like Emily refers to it as a melting pot language. That's so true. It has roots in Greek, in Latin, in French, in Old English. There are roots to words. 
if something doesn't make sense, there's a reason that it's spelled that way. Like the word two, the number two, that has, it's derived from the old English twa. There's etymology online. You can look up why words have certain spellings. It's not that it's just weird. So, I mean, I think that it really needs to get to that level in terms of teacher training. Teachers need to know this is not a weird language that just is the way it is and you need to memorize it. There are roots and foundations in this language. Parts of it are, you know, it's a phonetic language where the letters are representing sounds. You also have, um, it's a morpho- um, it has roots in morphology in Greek and Latin. And all of these different elements need to be taught. When you are, you know, when you're looking at dyslexics, but you can imagine everyone benefits from, you know, breaking the language down into its sound parts. And it's also morphologic parts, which are rooted in meaning. So if you want to sit there and have your kids memorize a bunch of words, or you want to have them memorize prefixes, suffixes, and understand the root words of language, right? If they learn the word hydro means water, if they come to a word like, you know, um, hydraulics, they may not know that word, but they may realize it has something to do with water. It's a much better idea than guessing at a picture. I mean, there are ways to teach this language where it makes sense, and you can actually build a tremendous vocabulary as well um, on even the morphologic roots of language. So, you know, this is a science. You know, teachers are not, you know, it's not this nebulous, like, inspiration fairy. I'm going to give some kid a book and they're just going to fall in love with reading. There are some kids that will just, you know, learn to read no matter what. But I would argue when we have 37% of kids on level with reading that most need explicit instruction. And I will say that if you're going to be advanced as a reader, you better know the, the, especially the word morphology to get more advanced vocabulary. And we're doing our students a disservice and teachers a disservice by not elevating the profession to that level of really a diagnostician and an expert in the English language. Yeah. I love how you're, how you're referencing it as elevating the profession because I feel like sometimes um, teachers feel like their, quote, creativity is being taken away or they're being, like, you know, tied down. But I see it as the same as you do. I see it as really elevating teachers and leaders to a space where they are empowered to make those decisions because they have the knowledge to do so, because they have the scientific knowledge to do so. I mean, you need to be an expert to know these are the sound sequences we're going to teach in what order. And my students, like, you're not moving on until your students are getting those sound sequences. And there is a methodology to teaching spelling, like A-C-H versus A-T-C-H, and why there's a T in there. And there's an open syllable and a closed syllable, and that's why it has a long A or a short A. And there's a difference, you know. If, you know do you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, these yeah. are the reasons <laughs> you have different pronunciations. I mean, that is, that is not boring. That is being an expert 
and and really a craftsman at getting kids to really understand their language and to be fluent readers. I, I see it as the most important, the most elevated job in the schoolhouse. Mm-hmm. And they shouldn't, Melissa, to your point, they shouldn't be getting to you without being a fluent reader. And I would put this challenge out. If you have schools filled with kids with reading failure, and those kids are all able to go to college, that should be proof enough that you guys can do this. You can absolutely have the vast majority of your kids fluently reading. It is literally should be the bottom of the barrel requirement for any kid in school. There is no reason, unless there is a massive cognitive defect, that that child can read. I'll even point out that Helen Keller could read. And she was deaf and she was blind. I mean, come on. Yeah, I have a, I'm working on a project right now that basically we're looking at that, right? Like the students who are coming into middle and high school who are still not reading fluently. And I, I say it so often where I'm like, how is this not the number one like, <laughs> like thing everybody is concerned about? Um, but there are just, you know, a hundred... Um, hundreds of other things that people are standards over here and this over here and other things. But I, I, you know, I, if they could read fluently coming into middle school and high school, they would do better in every subject area across the board. (laughs) Well, it's the foundation of everything. It's the foundation of everything. So if you don't get reading right, you cannot build on the content. The content across the curriculum is predicated on ability to read. And, you know, the other side of this is, and Emily talks about this in the podcast, is this Matthew effect with reading. That if they do not have good foundational skills of reading, you know, once you're fluently reading, all of those expansion in language comprehension, in background knowledge, in you know, content areas is predicated on being able to read. And, you know, in that sense, and she makes that argument quite clearly, that the rich do get richer in terms of literacy. You know, when kids can read well, everything builds upon it, including their conventions of language, their ability to write, their, uh, all of it. Um, And if you can't and you're stuck at that beginning stage, everything unravels. So this is teachers of reading, elementary ed teachers are the most critical teachers in the schoolhouse. And I don't mean to, you know, you know, everybody's important, but if they don't do their job and get these kids on level, then Melissa, you can't do your job. You cannot teach reading to a middle and high school student and teach the content you need to teach. It is setting you up for failure. You guys all need to be rowing in the same direction. And it starts with getting those kids in the literacy boat early. Yeah. And, and teachers really advocating for that, like, right. And understanding that. And it's just so different. And in fact, opposite of what we've been taught, you know, I mean, until, um, Baltimore city had adopted foundations and had adopted, um, or, or went into the process to adopt a knowledge building curriculum and the, the research started moving forward around, I mean, for us, I mean, Melissa and I sat there and we were like, 
surrounded by research around knowledge building and the impact of it. And I, I, I think I looked at you, Melissa, and I was like, I just feel like this is everything that I've <laughs> been thinking, but I didn't know that I, you know, like it was just, it felt so right. <laughs> and I was like, there's no way that we, un- that like this has been out there and we've just revealed this, you know, <laughs> um, it, it, until that those, those things happened, we were just, you know, doing our thing based on what we had been quote taught and based on the materials that we were given. And that's kind of the scary part is that we're just, we're just leaving teachers in their four walls of their classroom, you know, without this knowledge that they need to know. I mean, my thought, I mean, it was so interesting watching my daughter and what happened with her because I remember her, I mean, of course, at that point, I knew she was dyslexic and I didn't disclose it to the school because I thought it was kind of pointless to do that. And I'm, I went in and because I had started to get involved with decoding dyslexia at that point, so I'm like, let's just see if I can get her a 504. Look, let's just, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of bankrolling all her remediation at this point, but let's just see what I can, you know, get out of the school. Let's see if they even know she's behind. And I remember sitting there in this meeting and I said, I'll tell you, and they're like, well, she's fine. She has all A's and B's, which is a whole other thing. Like, the grades are always good, like, yeah. amazingly. Like, your kid can't get through a paragraph, but they have all A's and B's. Right. <laughs> I remember I sat there, and I said, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I can't believe I did this. I said, I'll put $1,000 down on the table. $1,000 right now. Go get her out of class, and you can have it if she can get through a paragraph without error. As I'll tell you what, I'll even give you three sentences. Let's go three sentences wow. without error. I said, and you can pick the book, and I'll tell you what. Go down the street to the elementary school and get the book. You don't even have to get it off the middle school shelf. Let's go see if she can read it. I'll put the money down the table right now because I know I'm not going to lose it. And they said, we're sorry, but her grades are too good. I mean, it was, like, unbelievable. Oh my gosh. Yeah, she ultimately got a five and four because I had to get her tested to put her in private school. And even then, third grade reading level in sixth grade, and they gave her a five and four with extra time. And I won't even go into, obviously, like what that looked like. But, I mean, I, I'm just here to tell you that if this is what is going on with a dyslexic kid that's that far behind, I mean, imagine how many kids are out there where their parents don't even know their kids are behind. They're not getting the help they need. They're already in middle school. You know, I mean, I, I, I think it's a canary in the coal mine for so many kids out there. Liz, I'm just and, and Really? Go ahead. Yeah. No, you go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, we got involved to do this, not to help our own kids. Our Our kids were helped because, we were able to get them the help and remediation. We're here to go in and sound the alarm bell for the kids who haven't had that advantage, who haven't had parents, who've had the money. So I want to make that really clear. You know, my daughter was helped because I could put her in an excellent school. And I mean, all the kids that go to those schools do incredibly well. But I'm here to fight for the kids that don't have that advantage. And they need to be able to get this help and support in the public school system. So that has been the charge for the last 
you know, five, six years. I was just curious, Liz, if you had any insight to how your daughter was able to get the A's and B's, even with, like, like you said, you know, struggling to get through a paragraph, how was she able to do that? Was it something, did she find some ways to get around the system or was it the actual instruction and assignments? Just wondering if you have any insight there. That's a great question. Mm -hmm. Um, So they get very smart. These kids are very smart. She had a very, she has a very high auditory um, processing. You'll see, especially, you know, you'll see kids, they have compensation strategies. (laughs) So if she heard it, her recall was close to hundred percent. She's a 99th percentile. So if she heard the lecture, her recall was excellent. Now, in the public school system, and this is my experience in her school, if there are spelling errors, grammatical errors, they're not, it's, they're not marking off for that. So your grade isn't being like diminished because of your spelling and grammar. They're not doing a lot of writing, so the pressure on the writing really wasn't there either um, because that would have been kind of an alarm bell. Um, so that was sort of, you know, I, I think that she could, and then she would audio book things because she knew she couldn't read it. So she basically compensated herself through and she could, you know, there wasn't a lot of demand on her writing, on her proficiency. Um, and no one was listening to her read. So you kind of put all those things together, you know, and you got A's and B's. It's so interesting. (laughs) I feel like kids who struggle are some of the most savvy kids because they, they learn that it's survival and they learn very quickly different ways to survive. I I think in um, one of Hanford's podcasts, she mentioned a child who just memorized full words and her her memorized words were just i mean probably more than more than our memorized words because we you know I can sound words out, so I don't need to memorize all the words, but she couldn't, so she was memorizing full words, and her memory bank of of full words were just was just wild um and I think that like kids with dyslexia especially find coping strategies so that it is almost hidden for quite a bit. What, yeah, like, what do you and, think about I that? Mean, yeah. I, I think that's absolutely spot on. And they, you know, and it has nothing to do with intelligence level. So the teachers were like, this kid has amazing insights. Her comprehension of what we're talking about is so elevated. She would remember everything she's ever heard. So, and we would read her these very kind of avant-garde historical books. And so her contribution in class was off the charts. She came in in sixth grade out of 1,600 kids. She came in in the top 10 um, in the geography B in school. I mean, her knowledge level was incredible. Yeah. So it's, you know, unless you're really digging down, and this is what I'm talking about, about being a diagnostician, you know, as a teacher and really understanding how kids learn to read, the disconnect between intelligence and reading, and how to really teach it, I don't know if you're going to necessarily catch on. Um, 
these kids are very good at hiding it and they're very embarrassed that they can't read. It's a really big sore spot. And so they feel like they're almost adult living a double life. But, you know, I want to get back to something you were talking about, about the word memorization. And I hope that any teachers watching this kind of go back and look at orthographic mapping. Mm -hmm. And this is really what we're talking about in terms of, you know, this discussion on decoding and, you know, a lot of this science, you know, they really have discovered how kids learn to read. And what they've discovered is that this knowledge of this string of code, I mean, basically letters are code for sound. And kids learn, you know, by decoding this string of letters gets mapped to their brain and linked to meaning. And where the dyslexic kids are getting stuck is that that decoding part, so the mapping is off. And, and having difficulty. But all kids benefit from having this by learning how this code is linked to sound and then mapping those words to meaning. This is the simple view of reading where you have decoding multiplied by your language comprehension. So mapping that decoding to the meaning, which gives you reading comprehension. And I want to make sure that we sort of talk about that because the goal is not to just sound out words. The goal is comprehension. The question that we have and the goal of science of reading is to get you there through decoding and language comprehension and having those two link together to create comprehension. So I want to make sure that that's really clear yeah. to the people that are listening. Thank you. That's really important. I keep thinking about, um, we had David Lieben on uh, a while back, and uh, Meredith Lieben as well, but uh, David Lieben wrote, was uh, one of the authors of both and literacy instruction in K through five, a proposed paradigm shift for the common core standards. And there's a paragraph that is standing out to me. Um, and I feel like I've, there are, there are texts that I get hung up on, and this is one of them. <laughs> um, and this paragraph especially is standing out to me, Liz, because of what you're saying in terms of, um, you know, your daughter was really lacking those foundational skill pieces, right? But you, as a parent, had given her some of the other pieces, and I wonder if that's what might have sustained her to the point where, she was, you know, you knew there was an issue, but the, it was kind of hiding in, in school versus a child who may not have had those, quote, other pieces. Um, so, like, when, he, when they talk about mm -hmm. both and literacy instruction, um, it, they say that all of the elements need to be available in a way that provides a coherent experience for students. Solid grounding in the foundational reading skills, development of academic language, so vocabulary and syntax, the steady growth of knowledge, experiences that lead to the judicious use of comprehension strategies, the ability to express thoughts and learning clearly through speaking and writing, and the capacity and motivation to sustain a volume of engaged reading. So what I'm hearing you say is that your daughter was, um, you know, lacking those foundational skills, possibly like lacking the academic language in some areas, but you were building her knowledge in, right, in, in areas like geography, like history, and, and doing a lot of reading. And she had um, a lot uh, to say because she could memorize what she heard. 
Right. But so like, look how much. Well, yes. But this is the point, though, that I think is often missed. Yeah. Look at how much she had on that language comprehension side of the equation. But because those foundational skills weren't there, how yeah. much that impacted her reading comprehension. Yes. Like and that is the first one. Advantage. Yes. Yes. And right? when, when you look at the report, right, it's the first one listed. Solid grounding in the foundational reading skills. And so, yeah, yeah, both, both and like we're like it and, and knowledge shouldn't be an absence of foundational skills. Foundational skills shouldn't be an absence of knowledge, but the impact to access the content and the knowledge is, is heavily impacted by those foundational skills, right? Like she couldn't access it because she couldn't read it. And I think it's on a, like, I look at it this way. It's like on a continuum, right? So in the beginning, when you're talking K through two, you're going to have a huge amount of time spent or should be spent on those foundational skills. And then as they flip into really knowing how to decode the language and those foundational skills are in place, then it really ramps up on the other side of the equation so that, you know, it starts, you know, it becomes almost this like snowball that's rolling down the hill. So when you're getting to middle school, you know, the complexity of your vocabulary, your ability to read complex text, your ability to write, the conventions of language are very elevated. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. I kind of equate it to, like, you're putting kids who can't walk out on a track and saying, we're going to run a marathon. So to me, you've got it, right? So, you know, you got to get these kids walking and you got to get them on, you got to get them on their feet. You got to get them walking. Maybe you get them running around the track once. And then once that happens, you can take them to track practice and you can train them for a marathon, but you're not getting anyone to run a marathon. who's not walking yet. And I think that's basically what the educational system has tried to do. And it's clearly not working when the vast majority of kids can't read. It has to be a complete shift in terms of how we look at this issue. Yeah. And there's a lot of stakeholders too in that, in that shift. Yeah. (laughs) That's what always like overwhelms and scares me a bit. You know, it's like, we all need to um, get on our feet together and we all need to start marching together. And it's, it's overwhelming to think about sometimes. That's why we need teachers. I mean, as advocates, I think we've done a lot to change the public school system. Um, And we've seen some dramatic shifts, even in my own county, because of the advocacy. And we're very grateful for that. However, we need teachers to really sound the alarm bells with either their, um, you know, the school systems in which they work, but even more particularly in the universities that they need to demand better and they need to hold university. They're paying a lot of money for these degrees and they need to hold their universities accountable. And I can tell you this. I mean, what I see out there is parents who have kids that are struggling with reading do not have the time or the energy to fight for other kids. It's very hard to get parents to advocate because their own kids are drowning. You're not going to start teaching a whole bunch of kids to learn to swim when your kid is going underwater. The parents in this game 
that are in the advocacy game, their kids, for the most part, have gotten help. And they're out there trying to fight for kids that aren't their own. That's a big ask to get people to fight for kids that aren't even their own. And we cannot do it without the teachers. We can't. We need the teachers on board sounding the alarm bell. That's why podcasts like this are so helpful. That's why the Facebook groups are so helpful. We need teachers are the biggest allies we could possibly ask for. And we need you to demand better of your school systems and more importantly, these universities. Yeah. We, we stand with you. Thank you for being that advocate. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Liz, we, I, I know I briefed you a little bit, but we, we always ask our guests to leave our listeners with a final piece of advice um, because we feel like we've had these rich conversations with our, you know, with, we've had a rich conversation today with you and we, we want just one final piece of advice uh, that you would leave our listener base with who are teachers, who are leaders, uh, who are colleagues, every, you know, some are parents, um, some are just trying to learn about all this stuff. So um, what would you like to say to our listeners? I'm going to give you two different pieces of advice, one for parents and one for teachers. For parents, trust your gut. If you are afraid that there's something wrong, you have something in the pit of your stomach that it's not right, trust your gut. You know your child best. And, and don't stop until you figure out what's going on. For the teachers, I will say have the intellectual curiosity to find out why your, the kids in your class are struggling to read. Find out what's going on in schools. You know, and I the schools that are focusing on reading failure, what they're doing in those schools to get kids reading successfully and off to college. Um, and I would say to the teachers, you know, be that voice. Um, we absolutely need you for that voice with your universities and with your school systems. And, you know, we really are counting on you to be the base of this change. Yeah. And thanks for all you do out there for kids every day. I know we, we always are amazed. We're like teachers just, they just love kids so much. I mean, that's why we all became teachers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a fantastic way to, uh, to finish. And, um, if you know, if you, Liz, if you happen to come across anyone from college or university who would be interested in talking with us, we are really interested in in interviewing someone from uh, at that level who is who wants to make a change and who knows about the science of reading and who is interested in uh, I don't know, like telling us about the changes that are happening at the collegiate level, even if it's just small to start. We're we're interested in that. <laughs> if you can find them, please let me know because we are actively looking. <laughs> so we'll all keep, we'll all keep looking. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time today, Liz. It was amazing. Yeah. It was great to hear your story. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And, you know, we're out there. So, you know, hopefully we can be um, supportive to anyone who is trying to go along this journey with us. And I appreciate you having me today. You know, as I said, I'm just a mom, but having said that, if I'm a mom and I can learn all this stuff about reading 
Certainly our wonderful teachers can do it too. It's, it can't, you know, it's not that daunting. So I'm impressed. And, I'm impressed every time I talk to you, Liz, because I'm like, oh, she's spouting all stuff about like orthographic mapping. And it's, <laughs> I'm like, she's a mom and she learned it. Go mom, you know, but you had to. So, and like, you know, teachers, teachers can learn it too. We, we just haven't had the opportunity to. That's right. So if I can learn it, and I clearly do not have a master's degree in education. Um, you guys can do it too. So hopefully that's an inspiration. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you again and have a wonderful day. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much.